0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast on the 8th of January 2010. I'm Duncan Jarvis, the podcast producer. This week, research published online on BMJ.com has shown that overweight and obese teenagers can be taught to eat more sensibly using a device called a Mandameter. I'll be talking to Professor Julian Shield, who led the study, about his results.
1: What we did find was that that weight reduction six months after treatment was maintained. And so I think we, what we believe we do is we've retrained them to eat more sensibly, yes.
0: Also this week, we expect a great deal of coverage for the contents of the Christmas BMJ, the mainstream media like a good quirky science story to cover. But the response to one of the articles in the latest Christmas BMJ was extraordinary. Santa Claus, a public health pariah, was a tongue-in-cheek article about the public health message that old St Nick was giving out. But it seems that some people went in on the joke, and I'll be talking to Nathan Grills, the author of the article, about the storm in the sleigh that resulted from it.
2: It was quite an interesting exercise for me in how the media picked it up. Many of the media outlets just read the press release, obviously, and didn't actually go back to the original article.
0: Before that, though, I'm joined by Berta Twisman, who's one of BMJ's web editors, who's going to take us through this week's news. Hi, Berta. Hi, Duncan. So what have you got for us this week?
3: Uh, Well, the first story is uh, from the UK, and it's to do with alcohol policy. um, And the title is The Current Burden on the NHS of Alcohol is Unsustainable.
0: It's been a big campaign for the BMA um, about this as well, hasn't there?
3: Very true. And a report just published by the NHS Confederation and the Royal College of Physicians, points out that the unsustainable burden that alcohol places on the NHS needs to be tackled urgently.
0: So what is the burden?
3: Uh, Well, the authors claim that alcohol-related problems now cost the NHS some £2.7 billion a year, which is double the cost of five years ago.
0: That's That's a lot of money. What are they spending it all on?
3: most of it is associated with the cost of the hospital and ambulance services that deal with the immediate effects of people's drinking too much. Um, But there has also been a rise in the cost associated with um, caring for people with long-term health problems caused by heavy drinking over years. And both of these factors combine to put an unacceptable strain on the service.
0: Okay, so do they have any suggestions about what can be done to to alleviate the problem.
3: They do suggest several things, um, which to me sound pretty theoretical. Um, first is improving systems to identify, assess and treat patients within hospitals and learn from existing best practice. Okay. Uh, then people who display early signs of alcohol addiction could be targeted better and helped to beat their habit before it becomes ingrained. And thirdly, efforts need to be made to lessen society's tolerance of drinking.
0: Those sound more like aims than any concrete plans.
3: Mm, That's quite right. And I have not actually perused the report in great detail um, in order to find out whether they make recommendations just how to do this step by step. So, you know, it's theory.
0: Okay. Is there anything else in the report?
3: Well, the authors note the benefits brought to hospital systems and patients care by improved links between mental health, community and ambulance teams.
0: And is there any evidence for that you know being effective?
3: Well, the the NHS Confederation visited hospitals between August and November 2008 um, before compiling this report Mm -hmm. and obviously spoke to a lot of um, staff members and Confederation members.
0: Okay, and I think it was Sir Liam Donaldson who's been playing a big part in this. What's he got to say about it?
3: Uh, Well, Liam Donaldson believes that a minimum price should be set for a unit of alcohol. But so far, the UK government has refused to accept this recommendation.
0: Okay. And um, the reports are available online?
3: The report's available at www.nhsconfed.org. Uh, we also have a discussion of the topic on our clinical community, doc to doc
0: Right. And I actually um talked to uh, Vivian Nathanson, who's head of ethics at the BMA, and Gerard Hastings about alcohol and its effect on society and you can listen to that podcast um, old problems new problems on our podcast channel right so do you have another story for us
3: um, yes the second story is also from the UK and deals with artificial feeding um, particularly in patients who are approaching the end of their lives
0: yes there's been a lot about end-of-life care and the government's got a big strategy about it um, so what's this story about
3: A report from the Royal College of Physicians and the British Society of Gastroenterology concludes that patients are too often put on artificial feeding to save time or because of an overly cautious approach.
0: What is the artificial feeding?
3: Artificial feeding is feeding through a percutaneous and endoscopic gastrostomy, um, a peg tube but yes, a, a, a working party has reviewed the clinical and ethical arguments con- concerning PEG tube feeding of patients who have difficulty swallowing because of neurological illness or other substantial disabilities.
0: Right, okay. And um, what did the review find about that?
3: Well, some 60% of nursing home residents and 12 to 13% of hospital inpatients have difficulty in swallowing. And because of its simplicity and low risk of complications, PEG tube feeding continues to be the most popular feeding option and is actually used in 83% of cases where people are fed artificially. Um, I guess it also saves the staff um, incredible amounts of time.
0: Yes, yeah. So if it's low risk of complications, what are the problems with it?
3: Um, well, experts are recommending that peg feeding is adopted only as the method of last resort and that more specialist nutrition teams are needed to advise the most appropriate way to meet patients' nutrition needs. So it seems to be a a matter of capacity, among other things. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Um, Does the report recommend anything about it then?
3: Uh, It does. Um, The report says that all trusts and care homes should ensure that enough staff members are available to help and feed those patients who need a long time to eat an adequate meal and nutrition teams ideally led by a doctor with special expertise in nutrition should be available to work with patients and their families when patients have feeding difficulties and clinicians are also advised that even if a patient is deemed to have an unsafe swallow a risk management approach could help them continue to eat normally and where tube feeding is necessary this should be in addition to normal feeding wherever possible And thirdly, decisions about artificial nutrition and hydration should never be based on the convenience of staff or carers.
0: Okay, and uh, that report's available online as well?
3: It's out at www.rcplondon.ac.uk.
0: Great. Thanks, Beata. I'm joined now by Julian Shield. He's a professor of diabetes and metabolic endocrinology at the University of Bristol, and he also works at the Bristol Royal Hospital for Children. Now, Julian and his team have been looking into obesity. Julian, it's a big problem in the UK. I mean, I'm sure doctors have noticed that themselves. Can you quantify that for us? How many people, how many kids suffer from it?
1: Well, the figures, as you may or may not know, the latest figures... Suggest that possibly the problem's leveling out, but over the last twenty or thirty years, there's undoubtedly been uh, an increasing prevalence of childhood obesity, and we do have some figures for the from the school measurements program, and around Bristol, about twenty to twenty-five percent of children are either overweight or obese, so it's a significant proportion of of the population.
0: Mm. And you've been doing research into childhood obesity
1: in lots of different aspects so mainly in in care delivery but also in predictors for complications from childhood obesity as well.
0: And the particular research we're talking about this time is about um, retraining eating behaviour to combat obesity.
1: One of the observations was that children who uh, have a tendency to have increased weight tend to eat quite fast and often the the patient or the family will say "You know, they'll eat a whole meal and they'll still feel hungry and they'll go back for more. Mm-hmm. And we wondered whether trying to allow people to recognize satiety or fullness might be a useful adjunct because there are streams of evidence now that suggest that possibly the way we eat is a component of what we eventually end up eating in terms of calories. And So that's where it's essentially aiming at.
0: It. Okay and to do this you used a new tool. It's a mandameter and it's, it's, it's from Sweden, I believe. But it wasn't originally used to treat obesity.
1: No, it was originally used to treat patients with anorexia and bulimia. And of course, they have quite um, different eating problems. Anorexics will tend to eat very little and feel full very quickly. Bulimics will tend to eat very fast, but then of course vomit. But so, the, but these sorts of eating behaviours are all associated with significant clinical morbidity, and mm-hmm. you know, people or adolescents with obesity might well exhibit some of the same eating behaviours, and perhaps we could in this case, slow down their speed of eating to get them to recognize their satiety. So it was kind of turning the whole idea on its head. We did a a, a pilot study, and we found that, yes, our adolescents with significant obesity often it rather fast than, than normal people did. So if we slowed down their speed of eating, would they recognize their satiety a bit better? And would it eventually lead to them perhaps changing their eating behaviours.
0: Sure. So how does this tool actually encourage that change in behaviour?
1: As the food leaves the plate, the plate is essentially attached to a scale. So as grams of food are reduced, you can actually plot the line as the food is removed from the plate.
0: So just to to clarify, this line is plotting amount eaten in grams against time and... The slope of the line will be the rate of eating. Exactly,
1: exactly. That's completely right. And that will develop as the food leaves the plate. And what you can do is you can get them to try and approximate that red line, which is developing, which is the grams of food leaving the plate per, per minute, if you, if you like, um, to the blue line that we've previously set. So that's the control line. And you can gradually change that blue line such that they gradually learn to eat slower, to finish their meal over a more appropriate time.
0: Okay, and the behaviour then is constant after that. Once they don't have to use the the mandometer anymore, then their eating behaviour has changed significantly.
1: So what we found is those patients who'd been on the mandometer side of the therapy had actually reduced what they determined to be their portion size by about 45 grams on average per meal. And what we did see was they were eating slower, but the actual uh, study was... Um, powered to determine change in body mass standard deviation score. So uh, we got a significant, statistically significant change in uh, total food consumed after 12 months, but um, a non-significant change in uh, speed of eating. But what we did find was that that weight reduction six months after treatment was maintained. I mean, I think the inference is that potentially you may need more Periods of reinforcement, and actually, that hasn't been done, as far as I'm aware, in any other intervention. And so I think we, what we believe we do is we've retrained them to eat more sensibly. Yes,
0: the mandometer isn't widely available. Um, if a GP has a parent coming in who's concerned about their child and has seen this research, is there anything that they can do to to advise the parents how to encourage this slower eating um, in their children?
1: The premise that eating slower does allow your levels of satiety to develop um, better effectively is true. And so the idea of eating slowly, if you do that regularly, you tend to eat less, is something that's amenable to lots of other aspects of life. For instance, sitting down to a meal together. Mm. I think uh, it's undoubtedly the case that if you sit in front of a TV, and you eat your meal all by yourself, you'll tend to eat it quite quickly. Yes. If you're sitting down at a table and you're having discussion and, you know, spaces in between, mouthfuls, all those old things that people used to suggest were important, when, you know, really to do with manners and things like, you know, don't, don't shovel your food down.
0: I like putting your knife and fork down between mouthfuls.
1: Try to Try to chew your food properly. There probably are elements of truth in all of those, because what all of them will tend to do is to make you eat slower.
0: Julian, thanks for joining us. If you want to find out more about tackling obesity, there's a series of three learning modules sponsored by the Cross-Government Obesity Unit, available for free on the BMJ Learning website. So we're moving now from obese kids to one of the most recognised public figures in the world, and one who's known for being fat. I'm joined by Nathan Grills. Uh, the article Nathan wrote for the Christmas BMJ was called Santa Claus, a Public Health Pariah. In it, Nathan talked about the potential messages that Santa might be communicating to kids. Drink driving, extreme sports, clambering on rooftops, obesity, and spreading flu. Nathan, thanks for joining us.
2: Uh, Merry Christmas, Duncan.
0: So how was this picked up by the press?
2: It was, it was really picked up. All over the world very quickly on the day that it was the embargo was lifted and it was released i had hundreds of calls that day and emails and i was just quite amazed i didn't expect it at all i thought you know it was an article i did uh during my my downtime basically as a bit of comedy relief for myself personally and i thought it'd make a good article published in the british medical journal in the, the christmas edition i was quite surprised at the attention it got
0: they didn't pick it up in the spirit in which it was recommended did they
2: it was quite an interesting exercise for me in how the media picked it up. Many of the media outlets just read the press release, obviously, and didn't actually go back to the original article. The original article is, is quite quite clear that what the article is about is humorous. It's trying to get a serious message across, but I think the, the people, the media outlets hadn't read the original article. So they, they took it all very seriously, and they made they, they a lot of accusations about you know Scrooge and the Grinch killing Christmas, sometimes Scrooge has an Australian accent and a medical degree is what CNN said. So there was a quite extreme reaction to it and a lot of the the public also took that on I guess or were fed by the media and were also quite quite shocked that someone dared to attack Santa Claus at
0: Christmas. (laughs) So you don't actually hate Santa then?
2: No, not at all. No, look I've actually uh, helped Santa myself a number of times in delivering presents to kids um, a number of Christmases in, in Australia, so look, I'm like not at all. Hate Santa. And it was, it was, wasn't the intention of the article to try and destroy the institution of Santa.
0: <laughs> what did you intend to do with the article?
2: Well, I, I guess, it, well, initially, it spread some Christmas cheer, and I think it, it did that. A lot of, I should say, a lot of the responses were really enjoyed reading the article, and they, one person said he, he laughed himself silly, and so a lot, a lot of people found it very amusing and it spread a bit of Christmas cheer. But also, I wanted to get people talking about. You what know, are the three big killers in Australia, at least? Uh, you know, three big risk factors are tobacco, alcohol, and and obesogenic foods or or junk foods. Santa has been used to advertise for those products, and I want to get people thinking about what what is what is advertising companies doing when they're using a a, a childhood icon like Santa, who's universally recognised, and they're using it to advertise whether it be junk food or whether it be alcohol or, or cigarettes. I mean, Santa did used to advertise cigarettes, yeah. but it does. It is advertising to kids, and if kids are being influenced by that advertising, should we be allowing that, that advertising? And I guess that was part of it was also raising questions about, about role models. You know, I wasn't at all implying, like some of the media outlets picked up, that Santa causes obesity. I think I had in the article that it's an association between Western... Santa believe in countries in obesity, which obviously is an ecological fallacy, but <laughs> some of the articles, some of the media outlets took that quite seriously. But it's, it's raising awareness about about those issues that we need to be talking about and looking at role models. I mean, you know, I think in America, Ronald McDonald's the, the second most widely recognized figure after Santa Claus for kids. So, you know, Ronald's is very effective at, at advertising McDonald's products. So, you know, we've got to, to be aware of that. So I was hoping there's probably be a bit of discussion over the Christmas you know, table and, I think it did. Onto that discussion.
0: How did the reaction to the paper affect you?
2: No, look, Duncan. I wasn't upset at all. I, I think I was. I was surprised that people misinterpreted the article, but I, I quite enjoyed replying to many, many emails that, that I received, and even on some of the online forums where people were sharing ideas, just to, just to explain the real meaning of the topic and and to say, well, you know, the real meaning of Christmas is not about Santa being the leading marketing guru for Coca-Cola or some other company. It's the many of Santa about generosity and giving and spreading that, that Christmas cheer. So I think when people realized that, and realized that the, the nature of the article wasn't really trying to destroy the institution of Santa, nearly every person I replied to, and I replied to every email I got, which was, was hundreds, every, every person that I replied to, they all, they all got back to me and said, oh, I apologize and I'm, I'm, I agree with you what you're saying. And I'm actually interested in giving myself so I, was quite, I quite enjoyed that part of it.
0: You said that you did this article in your spare time. What do you do for a day job?
2: Now, I'm currently involved in work in India. Uh, that's, so I guess in some ways it does relate to St. Saint, to Saint Nicholas. Interestingly, I, I think St. Nicholas is is a great model in some ways. He was the, well, what Santa Claus is based on, and a very generous spirit that gave all that he had to the poor. And I guess for myself, as a, as a Christian as well, I... My, my focus in my work is, is a lot of charitable work in uh, North India. We're training community health workers, or of course, I guess barefoot doctors, to go where, where doctors and nurses wouldn't go in the, the rural, rural parts of the Himalayas. We're trying to train health workers to increase access you know, to community health, um, to community health care in those in those areas. So that's sort of part of the, the charity work I'm involved in. But my research currently is, is looking at. Uh, community health networking. We bring community health programs, which are quite small individually. If we link them together, can we help them increase the quality of their work by allowing them to do trainings, to do collaborative activities, to to link with the health system because they're more visible, also to be to be advocating for for health issues. Uh, that relates. When I was in England, I worked with uh, an organisation called Community Health Global Network. So they did some great work in helping. Community health programs, which are small in in resource poor settings, helping them link together so they can increase the effectiveness of their work. My work is still working with them, and I'm researching that as a model to see if it's an effective way. And hopefully, that will well the results of that will feed into other programs right around the world. Hopefully,
0: Nathan, thanks for joining us. If you're interested in the community health global network that Nathan talked about, you can have a look at their website. It'll tell you much more about it, and you can support them from there. So we're moving from a Christmas article to a Christmas appeal now. The BMJ's Christmas appeal this year was with MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières. In part podcasts, we've been talking to doctors who've been working in the field with MSF, and they've explained a bit about the work that they do there, and you can listen to that on our podcast channel. This is just a quick note to say that that appeal's still going on. We're hoping to better what we did last year. If you want to support MSF go to the BMJ's website at bmj.com and follow the links there to our Christmas appeal. So that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with more medical stories. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.